We're continuing to walk through uh, the story of Elijah, and we're in the fifth week of the story of Elijah. And last week, we saw him do something incredible, and this week, the story takes a real turn. Like, if you were writing out what you thought would happen if you never heard this story, I don't think that this would be the next step, the next logical step. Um, but it is something that we can still draw from. I, uh, I have a three-year-old at home um, who loves to play pretend like he just really enjoys and has a super active imagination and he really likes to pretend that he is something and that I'm something else or Emily is something else and he will assign our roles to us and if you come to our house just to visit you also will not be yourself you'll be a dinosaur or one of the ninja turtles or a power ranger or whatever like that's just what he's going to do And um, one thing that you probably don't know about me, um, because you're not my child, is that I'm also great at imaginative play. And I like to play pretend. And I get really into character. Like the Oscars should come watch when I play pretend with Cohen, because we put on some epic performances. And one day in particular, we were playing Lion King. And he really likes the final fight scene. We try to get him not to fight things, but it's like in his DNA for some reason. He is a fighter. He likes to do it. And so we've just resigned ourselves like he's going to do karate or something. Like we need healthy outlet for this. But we were playing the Lion King final battle scene. He uh, comes up and he tackles me because he is Simba and I am Scar. He's the good guy. I'm the bad guy. And he tackles me. He pins me down. And he's got his hands on my shoulders. And he leans down and he says, murderer, tell them the truth. And I have to say, and I have to say, I killed Mufasa. So you did get to experience it. You're welcome. But then he's like, louder. And I have to say it again. And so then we're like, jump up. And we start wrestling some more because you've seen the movie. Everyone's seen this movie. But we're wrestling and like doing the thing. And then all of a sudden I was like, I'm going to ad lib right now. And so I like really got into the bad guy character. And I started like wrestling him and holding him. And I was like, you can't get out. And he was like, oh, no, Dada. You're not Scar anymore. You're Dada. You're not Scar anymore. You're Dada. And so I let go. I was like, Okay, that happened all of a sudden. I was like, what? What's wrong? And he was like, that was too scary, Dada. I didn't like that. I said, okay. The story that we're talking about today is when life gets too scary. And he's like, we don't want this anymore. It's too much. It's too scary. We want to press pause. We want to give up. Or we just want to move on. And Elijah presses pause and says, it's too much. And he runs away. Will you pray with me as we begin? Father, I are thankful for your word and the stories of how you've moved in history and how you move us towards yourself and towards redemption. And we pray today that we might see something from scripture about how we're to live and who you are as well. How we love you and we trust you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. As a recap, in case you haven't been here one of the last few weeks or just to get ourselves on the same page, we're going to walk back through. Elijah has had a crazy sequence of events. He started out in verse 17, 1 Kings 17, and he has to declare before a king boldly that there will be no more rain. Because this nation of Israel had been waffling between different gods and they didn't trust God completely. And he he has to say to a king, a prophet, he has to say, there will be no more rain. And then immediately God sends him out 
And he has to go and be prepared for what the work that he's going to do. And so he's sent to the Kareth Ravine, where there he has to trust God to give him just enough food for every day. And it's actually not just enough food for every day. It's enough food for the morning, and it's enough food for the night. And there's a brook that, that goes in front, and so he can drink water there. But there's no rain. And so the brook dries up. And then Elijah has to trust God again, and he has to go to a widow. And the widow doesn't have the primary provider in that time frame, which would have been her husband who passed away. But God says, go to the widow, and the widow will provide for you. And so it's very humbling exchange where Elijah has to say, will you make me some food and give me something to drink? And she's like, you know there's no rain, right? There's no food, there's no rain. I have to take care of my kids, and now you want, want food as well. And Elijah, because of the Kareth Ravine, says, you can trust God will provide. Let me in. He's led me here. Trust him, and if we trust God together, it will be enough. And there was enough. There was enough for them, and they ate for many days. And then in the widow's house, everything's going well. And then all of a sudden, the child that was sick in the house. So this widow's child ends up sick and is dying or is dead right there in the, in the middle of it. And the widow's like, what are we going to do now? And Elijah, because he cultivated trust, takes the child and he goes up and he prays, God, bring this boy back to life. Let this boy's life come back into him. And it does. And so you see Elijah developing this sense of like God can do anything, even the improbable, even the impossible. This boy who was dead in my arms is now alive again. And wow. And then he goes off to the big test and he has to go back to the king because this nation had fully embraced another set of gods. And so he sets up this epic showdown that we talked about last week where two, two teams essentially set up an altar one couldn't get fire to fall from heaven and consume the altar. And Elijah says, my God will send fire from heaven. And he trusts and believes because of everything that's happened that God will send fire from heaven. He believes it so much that he says, dump water on, dump water on, more water, more water. And it's soaking and there's water running around the trench. And fire comes from heaven. So if you're keeping score, Elijah has been provided for in the Kareth Ravine. He has seen a dead boy come back to life at the power of God. He has seen fire fall from heaven at the power of God. He is victorious, and he's standing there. And after his victory, he goes and he wipes out the rest of the prophets of Baal because this was a very violent time in which you lived. And if you didn't take out your enemies, they would take you out later. And so the prophets of Baal are destroyed at the hands of Elijah. And so at the beginning of verse 19, which is where we pick up today, Elijah is standing in his victory moment. He has just nailed his half-court shot, and he thinks the crowd's going to go wild, but something altogether different happens. And so if you want, you can turn to 1 Kings 19.2. And it just says this, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. That is a very ominous phrase, which essentially means, I'm going to kill you, Elijah. You think you're big and bad. I'm going to kill you. And if I don't kill you, may I be dead. And Elijah believes her. And he runs away. In verse 3, then he was afraid which are four very powerful words. Then he was afraid and he rose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. I think the first thing that we can draw from the story today is that fear happens. 
Fear will happen in life because things are overwhelming. Elijah, even Elijah, who was the standard bearer for faith and for trusting God in that time, who stood in front of a whole nation and who stood in front of a whole army of opposing prophets, gets afraid because Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And he believes her and he runs away. Fear happens even to the best of us, like Elijah. The question is, what will you do with your fear when it arises? Not, will I ever experience fear? We are not called to live such lives, such comfortable lives, that we never get into situations that seem out of our depth. We are absolutely called to go into those situations, and we're supposed to test our own limits. And because of that, we will get into situations where we have real fear. What do we do with that? A lot of times I think that we get this sense of guilt over our fear. Like, oh, I'm not trusting God enough. Scripture says over and over and over again, do not be afraid. It wouldn't be in there so often if we weren't going to have fear in our lives. Of course, it's beyond your strength. Of course, it's not beyond God's. We need to step into fear. And when we step into those things with the right perspective, we see that God will see us through. Elijah has a moment, just a moment. And this is the first moment where we see it in this passage where he's like, this is too much. And he just goes away. I don't know if you've had those moments in life, but Elijah's right there with you where you're like, God, this is just too much. And you just want to run away. We reach our breaking points. And that's where God shows up. Because the next thing we see in this story after Elijah runs away is that the word attends to us in our fear. When I say Elijah ran, he ran. He ran for a full day, then he left his servant in a place, and then he ran some more out into the wilderness until he just collapses under a tree. Is anybody a long-distance runner in here? Have you ever run until you just collapse under a tree? That's what Elijah does. And he's just sitting there. And he kind of falls asleep, and then an angel appears to him and provides for him. It says that um, they, they baked a cake with hot stones and gave him some water, which sounds delicious. I want to try that. Like, that sounds great. This angel gave him food, and then he slept some more. And then an angel gave him some more food. And then the angel said, okay, go. Go some more. And so for 40 days, he walked. And for 40 nights, he continued this journey until he ends up at Mount Oreb in a cave. And that's where something kind of wild happens. Because in verse 9 it says, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And it's interesting because it's the same character that's shown up time and time again in Scripture. If you go all the way back to verse 17, chapter 2. It says, and the word of the Lord came to him. And then in chapter 18, verse 1, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And then in verse 19, 9, and the word of the Lord came to him. Time and time again, the word attends to us in our fear. Or maybe the word there for you isn't fear. Maybe it's confusion. Maybe it's exhaustion. 
Maybe it's chaos. God meets us in our despair, and he met Elijah in his despair. And every other time, in verses 17 and, and in chapter 17 and in, verse, in chapter 18, the word appears and gives Elijah a direction. He says, go in this thing and do this thing. First it was go talk to the king, and then it was go into the Kareth Ravine, and then it was go to a widow, and then it was go have this showdown. And now when the word of the Lord shows up, it says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Almost like, do you not remember the fire from heaven? Remember that I'm the one who's had the strength the whole time. It's never been you. You've never been actually fighting this battle. Yes, you've been on the front lines, and yes, you've been there, but I've been the strength through this, remember? I sent fire from heaven. I brought the boy back to life. What are you doing here? Why did you run away? Not in a condemning way, but just in a, do you remember where I've taken you and what I've done? We all get to a point or we'll get to a point in our lives where we say, like Elijah did, I don't know if I can go on anymore. And Elijah would rather die in this moment. He says, just, just let me be done. Just let me be done because I thought we were there. I thought we had it. There was fire from heaven and I was standing there and we just won this great battle. And now, oh, I'm just gone and I'm in this valley and I'm in this cave. And Elijah says in verse 10, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, even I only am left. And they seek to take my life away. If you have a child, you can hear the tone of that voice. It is kind of whiny. Oh, God. We were so close. <laughs> I, just, I was trying so hard and I was doing so much. And then now oh, I just, I had to run away. Jezebel said she was going to kill me. Didn't you hear that? You're God. And so he runs. God knows we'll get to the places in life where we wonder, should we just be done? Because <laughs> I've, been, I've been out here for so long. And in those moments, we need to carry on just a little bit longer that we might find the peace that we're looking for and trust that Scripture has something for us. And so in those moments when fear happens and in those moments when you have confusion and in those moments where you lack perspective or purpose or meaning, Scripture will attend to you just as it did for Elijah. They didn't have Scripture like this. But the phrasing reminds us that we should cling to the word in times of great distress and in times of great trouble. John 1, 1 through 4 says this about Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the word, but the capital W word, not the one that appears for Elijah, a different thing altogether, a different standard for the way to live, a different thing to hold on to. Jesus is the word. And if Jesus is the word, then that means that the reverse is true as well, that the word is Jesus. And when we turn to the word or scripture in times of our brokenness, when our world and in life seems broken, it will be life for us. 
And when we turn to it in moments when everything seems too dark, it will be a light for us. And so cling to this. I think oftentimes when we get into situations where it feels like life is too much, we can get into this really tough perspective battle. Almost like God has placed a stake in the middle of a training ground. And he said, okay, I'm going to see if you can hold on to this stake in the middle of everything that's going to happen in your life. And then there's a test and there's wind. And then the pole shakes and God's like, okay, I'm turning up the, the shaking. I'm turning up the wind. Will you, can you hold on to this? I want to see how strong you are. Okay, give him a break for a minute. Now I'm going to give him some more. And so you better hold on see how strong you are in the middle of this. Okay, now let's do some fire or something. Let's see how well they can hold on to the pole in the middle of fire. And that's not how God's treating us. What he's saying is you are standing in the middle of a world full of wind and earthquakes and fire. You better hold on to my word because it will be an anchor for you when those trials come. It will be an anchor for you when the winds blow and when the ground shakes and when everything's upside down, you better hold on. I'm not seeing how strong you are. I'm sending you an anchor to make sure that you stay steady in the middle of everything that will happen in your life. So cling to, cling to the life that I have for you. Hold on just a little bit longer. Because I want to see you through this trial. Because as we look in scripture and as we see, we see that God brings peace. God is not a God of calamity. He is a God who brings peace. And so he sent us these anchors to hold on to in the middle of our trials. And so we pick up in 1 Kings 19. And God, after he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? It says, go stand out on the mountain before the Lord. And it says, and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it into pieces and the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and it said, what are you doing here, Elijah? After Elijah runs away, after he's not sure what to do, there's an earthquake God's not in the earthquake. There's a strong wind that breaks things and God's not in the wind. There's this fire and God's not in the fire. But there is this peace. There is this whisper on the other side of all those things that says, what are you doing here? Almost like a reminder. When God repeats this question, it had to be like, oh wait, he's not actually confused. He's trying to remind me I'm trying to remember, what am I doing here? Because I'm not here just to go through trials. I'm here for something, and God has peace for us. There's this really cool uh, repetition that happens in 1 Kings 19. And it shows us something about God. 
Last week, I, I mentioned that Emily was diagnosed with a brain tumor about 13 months ago, and that she, um, she had gotten treated for it about this year. Last time it was about, it was the end of June uh, last year. Um, and I kind of left it hanging there. That sounds kind of like something, but it's, it's, you know, whatever. The doctor told us um, that the brain tumor that she has is like the best possible brain tumor to get. Okay, that's good, I guess, you know, but I still have brain tumor, you know. And so it's an acoustic neuroma. It's on the nerve that goes from her ear to her brain. And uh, they treated it, and the treatment went really well. But over these past year, it's been us walking through, her walking through, me walking beside her, what they call a new normal for you, as if that's supposed to give you some kind of comfort. Like, I, I like my old normal, <laughs> you know? Like, I don't, want, I don't want to learn a new normal, one that's full of dizziness and, and a lack of hearing. And so we, we knew going into that, we knew that God would bring peace for us, and so we clung to Scripture. But there were still times where each one of us said, God, what is happening here? Because I don't like this at all. But what is happening here? And so we just held on to the promises of Scripture and we prayed and we held on to the fact that God would see us through even this, would see her through even this. But peace and the peace that God brings comes in and bursts and it grows. And there are other times where you just want to say, God, what is happening? And even if it is the wrong perspective, why are you doing this to me? saying, I'm not doing anything to you. Why are you here? What are you doing here? And we see in 1 Kings 19 through this repetition that drives, God is patient. If you look at 1 Kings 9 and 10, and then four, uh, 13 and 14, you see something incredible. In verse 9 it says, And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, and have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets of the sword, and I, even I, am left. And they seek to take my life away. And then in 13, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Elijah's very proud of this speech. And he's telling God over and over again, do do you not, what do you mean, what am I doing here? You saw everything that happened. Why am I going through this? And then we see the the response of God in verse uh, 15 where he says, Elijah, would you quiet down with all the complaining and the whining and the talking about what's going on in your life and the killing of the prophets and the blah, blah, blah. Stop the whining. Oh, no, wait. That's not right. (laughs) Which, to be fair, I have done to Cohen when he's whining. I'm just like, stop whining. God is a more patient father than I am, and I think that's great news. But he gives Elijah his next instructions. He says, go. Go back to that place. Go back to that place that you're so scared of. And start instating new kings and new prophets 
And the change that I started with you, I want to see through, even though you feel you're at the end of your rope. I'm still here. I'm still here with you, Elijah. You're not all by yourself. Just get up and go. I know you were afraid. I know you ran away. But you got to go back. You have to go back. Because that place needs the change that only you can bring. That place needs you to trust that I am bigger than your fear. That place needs you not to be paralyzed in this sanctuary moment with me, but to go out and bring change to this world because I'm tired of it being broken. And I choose you to go help fix it. Despite your fear and despite your feelings of insignificance, you go. Because the last thing we see is we are sent, we're often sent to our place of fear to bring change. So do not give up. Elijah has to go back. Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. Elijah says, yeah, I think you're going to try. Runs away. And God says, okay, (laughs) let's try again. Go back. Jezebel is not stronger than me. Jezebel is not more powerful than me. She might be more powerful than you, but she is not more powerful than me. And so you go back. And so I don't know what it is in your life, but God is saying that might seem more powerful than you, but it is not more powerful than me. So you go to there and you bring the change that only you can bring in my name. And I will be your power in the midst of all of that. You have nothing to be afraid of, even when fear seems so big. Don't let it paralyze you. Keep stepping through. When we allow fear to keep us from going to places, we put up fences around a fenceless gospel. When we allow fear to keep us from places, we build walls in a gospel that had no walls. We put borders down on a borderless kingdom of God that seeks to penetrate and reconcile the whole world to the goodness of who God is, to this patient, peaceful, and loving, and kind Father in heaven. Jesus sends us out of this sanctuary moment. It's good that we gather here and we have moments where we feel like we need to just cover our face because the presence of God is thick in this place and we get overwhelmed with worship and we sing out with everything. But the other side of that is let darkness tremble in your holy name. And the only way that darkness trembles is if we, the light, go to those dark places. We don't need to be afraid of fear because fear should be afraid of Jesus. And we will go out in his name and bring change to brokenness and bring healing and hope and light of the gospel. We don't stay in a sanctuary. We go to bring reconciliation. As was mentioned, we... Uh, had a team come back from Monterey, Mexico. And I remember the first time that I went to Monterey, Mexico, I was two months married and I went by myself and I got paired up with an all women's group. It was strange. Okay. I thought, like there, there was no deep insight. It was weird. Like I'm this single, young, newly married guy and I'm going to get paired up with this um, women's group. And I, I learned a lot through that, but the, the, the overwhelming fear feeling as I left my new wife at the airport 
was, I don't want to do this. I'm good, you know, like here in the U.S. But God was saying, go. And God was saying, go, and I had to get on the plane. And I remember thinking very clearly, like, oh, no. What if this plane goes down and Emily and I's story is, New, you know, new husband dies and wife has to live whole life as God's, as a widow. And Emily has to figure out and sort out that windstorm and that earthquake. And I was like, I shouldn't be doing this. Like, I might leave her alone for the rest of my, of her life because I'm going to die on this plane. Like, what's happening? It was in a bad place. But it was real fear. It was real fear that was stirring up in me. And I still got in the seat and I still went across the border, and I still went to Mexico, and I saw how God was at work there. I didn't save anybody. I didn't build a bunch of houses all by myself because I'm so big and strong and cool and awesome. I saw how God was working in the lives of children who have been abandoned by their parents through back-to-back ministries. I saw that God is working on a scale so much bigger than we could have ever imagined because he was powerfully at work in Monterey just as he was powerfully at work in my life in Kentucky at the time. This gospel, this good news has no limits It is at work in your seat, the seat next to you, and all the way across the globe. We need to trust that everywhere in between needs our help to go. So I don't know what your next step is, but your next step is definitely out of here. Out of here to trust God more fully and to bring change more completely and to bring kindness Because we need to go into the places of our fear, not hoping to prove ourselves right with the gospel, but to prove ourselves loving with the gospel. Because God is right, and he will prove himself right in the right time. Right? And so we need to go with kindness, and with grace, and with empathy, and with graciousness, and with love, and kindness. So that people see Jesus actually changes people. He moves them from selfishness to selflessness. But for some of us, we need to make that move for the first time and trust Jesus completely. We're getting ready to take communion. And it's a time where we remember together all at once that Jesus is our strength. And what he did on the cross is what gathers us together and it's what sends us out. So we take a piece of bread which represents his broken body And we drink a little bit of juice, which represents his bloodshed, because that was the moment when everything changed for humanity. When we could lean in more completely. When we could become more fully alive in light of what Jesus has done for us. Because if you've never trusted that Jesus is the Lord of your life, and he has a better version of life for you found in scripture, then trust him today for the first time. You can be baptized today or next week or whatever and just say, Jesus, I trust you. Or for the rest of it, it's a reminder that there are still people in the world that don't know. They don't know that God loves them and has a plan for them and an eternal hope for them. And that should make us want to sprint out of here 
into the darkest places of the world and just say, there's good news. There's good news. You don't have to live in the dark anymore because there's a light for you. I am terrified to be standing right here, but I have some good news for you. Jesus died for all of us to make a way for all of us. And I don't know if that's your next door neighbor's house or if that's Monterey, Mexico, or if it's Beijing, China, or what it is for you, but there is no place in between here and there that doesn't need the gospel. So just go, no matter how scared you are.